0: I meant to say this back towards the beginning when you were talking about how I came to the Lord of the Rings and what interested me about it. He didn't just invent this incredibly complex universe and mythology, but just the languages, the, the fact that he created Quenya and Sindarin and Kuzdul, I guess it was, it was a revelation to me that one could do that. It was my first exposure to the idea of constructed languages or conlang to use that word again.
1: J. R. R. Tolkien is one of the most successful and influential fantasy writers of the 20th century. His most popular works, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion, all take place in a medieval fantasy universe called Middle Earth. Tolkien was a professor of Old and Middle English at Oxford, and his fantasy novels frequently drew on European folklore and medieval literature for inspiration. Tolkien was especially influenced by myths and folktales from the Nordic countries, In The Hobbit, he borrowed the names of Gandalf and the dwarves from The Prophecy of the Cirrus, an Icelandic mythological poem. In The Lord of the Rings, he borrowed the theme of A Cursed Golden Ring from The Saga of the Volsungs, an Icelandic story of Norse gods and heroes. And in The Silmarillion, he adapted character names and stories of magical song contests from the *Kalevala*, the Finnish national epic. But for all his interest in literature, Tolkien was primarily a linguist, and he constructed fantasy languages for his Middle Earth based on the real languages he studied. For example, he based one Elvish language, Sindarin, on Welsh, and he based another, Quenya, on Finnish. Tolkien really loved Finnish. In one of his personal notes, he describes his first encounter with a Finnish grammar book, quote, like discovering a complete wine cellar filled with bottles of an amazing wine of a kind and flavor never tasted before. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya-Connors. I interviewed Dr. Matt Boudelier, a linguist and recent PhD graduate from the University of Wisconsin. Like Tolkien, Matt's research deals with the historical development of Indo-European languages and medieval European literature. Matt also co-hosts the Tolkien Heads podcast. Every week, the Tolkien Heads discuss a chapter of The Lord of the Rings. Each of the Heads brings a unique academic background to the discussion, and they are frequently aided by special guests.
0: So my role on the Tolkien Heads is the language guy.
1: I sat down with Matt to talk about the languages of
0: Middle-earth. I like to think of The Lord of the Rings and I guess all of Middle Earth, but mostly The Lord of the Rings as sort of Norse mythology fan fiction because um, it's kind of – it's like he really respected this uh, tradition of the sagas, like a, like a prose saga, I think, um, and he wanted to write his own, I guess, but kind of almost almost in the same world.
1: There's a lot of linguistic inside jokes. Which I am only now starting to unlock, and one of the the joys for me listening to your podcast is getting to hear you guys talk about these things. Perhaps you could, if you remember the example, talk about the word vault opening up. Does this ring a bell? Yes, the
0: uh, the word hoard, the word hoard. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. So this is a really well known phrase. I don't know how many times it comes up in Old English literature. I'm pretty sure more than once. I, I know in Beowulf. I think anyway, someone opens up their word hoard. Um, in Old English, word hoard. What does that mean? <laughs> it means it means a treasury of words, basically. Um, it basically means like the words that you know, and it's this is a so to open one's word hoard, or to unlock one's word hoard to translate the Old English differently means, basically, to speak and to open your mouth and to start speaking so it's interesting that our word uh thesaurus which is basically just a list of words i mean it's more complicated than that but um the the word thesaurus comes from ultimately the greek word for a treasure or a treasury um so i like to think of word hoard as being kind of like a a word it's a it's a treasury of all the words that you know and you can just spill them out at people yeah you can unleash the word hoard yeah Tolkien uses I forget exactly where it was but in the Lord of the Rings for sure I think word horror comes up in those exact words it's a it's a shout out I guess it's a wink it's a wink exactly yeah. it's a wink to people who study these things that might go over the heads of certainly me when I was in middle school That I wouldn't have known what to make of that but even you know your average adult reader there are so many words like that that are just not going to mean anything to you but it's, it's Tolkien's way of winking to to people in his sort of community who know who are in the know I guess
1: Yeah, I I think that studying other languages has really increased my appreciation of Tolkien. Yeah. You you read something like that, and at least when I was 15, that went over my head. Mm -hmm. Um, And then to realize that it's a call out to Beowulf and to the old heroic ideal in medieval literature of men are supposed to be very stoic and quiet, but then when they open up their mouths, it's really important and significant. Uh Um, And to have uh, just a really meaningful word to express that.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of languages, it's often said, and I, I think truly, that Tolkien invented Middle Earth and invented the story of the Ring and the Silmarils, etc., as in as a universe in order to have his languages play out, rather than the other way around. I think the language, the interest in language, came first for him, and he was very interested in having this uh, fictional language of a fictional group of people, and he gave them not only their own language, but their own language family. So Quenya is is a much older version of the Elvish language or of, of an an Elvish language than Sindarin, but in, in the world of Middle-earth, Quenya was spoken, you know, as a native language by people a long, long time ago, and then it went through some changes or thing, languages related to Quenya went through some changes and yielded the Sindarin language, another Elvish language, in much the same way, or I would say exactly the same way, as languages change in our world. So it's crazy. While he was writing uh, Norse Norse mythology fan fiction, as I call it, he was also writing language fan fiction. Basically, he he said, "What if What if there was a language that looked like this? What would happen? What What? And it's almost like these the word roots are characters, and you can watch them change and play out in ways. Because sim- you know, you can you can look at a a novel or some kind of narrative, and say, "Well, what would, how would people act in this, in these, in this situation?" Well, Tolkien is saying, "How would these sounds interact in this situation?" And he's basically applying his knowledge of historical linguistics and sound change to Quenya or something on the level of Quenya and evolving it into Sindarin using systematic sound changes, which is which is a really important tenet of comparative linguistics.
1: What language do the hobbits speak, and how many languages do they know? Okay, that's yeah, that's a great question.
0: Um, Most of them, most of the hobbits certainly speak one language. Uh, I think the hobbits, the Shire is a mostly monolingual community. Uh, They speak a language called Westron. We're never told exactly much about what it is or how it's related. I don't think it's related to the to the Elvish languages, but Westron is basically Tolkien's way of saying I'm going to write everything. I'm going to write the Lord of the Rings in English. Bear with me. Pretend it's in this hypothetical language because the Hobbits wouldn't really speak English because that wouldn't make sense. I, I guess Westron is really the lingua franca of the world. Even the orcs speak it. Um, so the orcs have their native languages. Is Orcish, which is very similar to, if not the same thing as the language of Mordor, which, which I believe historically is a form of Elvish, which has been, you know, corrupted and everything. But the orcs somehow they must learn Westron too because in that chapter of <clears throat> towards the beginning of the two towers when mary and pippin are in the orcish camp first they they're overhearing some things said in orcish and so we get this view of the orcish language but then the orcs speak to mary and pippin in westron a language that they can understand so i don't know how i don't know if, if westron is a commonly taught you know second language in mordor or what how exactly that works but Everybody seems to be proficient enough in Westron.
1: That is really funny to think about that because they had to they had to learn it somehow, right? Yeah. If I were to look for a real world parallel, I would actually look to the Scandinavian countries, um, and that the Swedish, Norwegian, Danish um, are all more or less mutually intelligible. But it's not uncommon to find people from different countries will use English to speak to one another because maybe where they come from in Norway has a really thick dialect that is pretty different than mm-hmm. what the person in Sweden in their dialect is like. And so they'll use English as a common language. But that's just a kind of a funny thing to think about because of the way that the orcs are portrayed. And so in that sense, they are more culturally educated than the hobbits.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. It's really funny to think about, but it's true. I mean, it has to be true, right? If you take the texts at face value, the orcs are fairly bilingual. Many of the hobbits are not. Many of the hobbits... You can think of it like most of you know America nowadays, where there's there's no real, I guess, or they don't think that there's a reason to pressure their children into learning a foreign language, and so they don't. Um, Frodo and Bilbo are rare exceptions, and I'm sure there are plenty of other exceptions. But I think most people, especially you know hobbits like Sam, um, good, down to earth, salt of the earth type people, um, probably only speak one language.
1: Yeah. So what I remember from. Reading *Lord of the Rings* or, or listening to it, I should say, and so this is part of my experience of listening to the the audiobook. is Is that the reader Robert Inglis, does a lot of different voices and uses a lot of different accents. Oh boy! For for the characters, and I remember from *The Hobbit* that that also is I think part of. Tolkien's writing, so that's not just Robert Inglis's interpretation. That in the Hobbit, the trolls are speaking some kind of Cockney British. They do it's lower class mm-hmm. British, and in the reading that I listen to, there's like there's definitely a connection between like class and who is speaking. the The orcs often have like a very kind of Cockney accent, or maybe some of them will sound a little Irish or something. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas. Frodo speaks in a very clean, proper British accent.
0: Yes, and especially Gandalf and Elrond and characters like that.
1: Yeah. Yes, that's true. And Sam,
0: I would say, um, is sort of the quintessential example of of a hobbit, a definite good guy, um, to put that in quotes, who speaks with what's definitely supposed to be perceived as a very low register or lower class register accent. Um, Sam has a lot of colloquialisms that he uses that the other hobbits don't use. Maybe Marion Pippin sometimes, but mostly not. Um, mostly it's a Sam thing. And you get that in, um, in the actual prose in the text. So it's what linguists tend to call eye dialect, which is I like E-Y-E. So you're, you're, it's what your eye, your eye can see, the dialect, basically. And some of these things, like to abbreviate him, apostrophe I-M or something like that, that's how most or many i should say native speakers of english already talk but to draw attention to it to draw attention that a speaker is doing that is sort of to you know without passing judgment on it is sort of to imply that this speaker is speaking some sort of non-standard or lower than a standard way and and that certainly characterizes sam's speech And the trolls in The Hobbit have the same thing. But the trolls are really, I think, more objectively cockney, I would say. Sam, I'm sure, has some kind of dialects that, at least in Tolkien's day, would have been perceived as rural, kind of country bumpkin kind of speech. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so there seems to be a lot of value attached to the way people speak and what their languages are. Yes. But
0: then, so beyond how, quote-unquote, English or Westron, we can call it, is represented there are also some strong opinions about like the Elvish language or the Elvish languages um, in the text. And it's funny, so Sindarin and Quenya are very differently sent. They're related languages, but Quenya, I think, outside of the text is sometimes referred to as Elf Latin, because basically it's sort of this, I don't know if liturgical language is the right thing to call it, but it's kind of like that. It's kind of It serves the purpose that Latin used to serve until recently for the Catholic Church, or that, like, classical Arabic still serves for Islam, or certainly biblical Hebrew serves for Judaism. It's, it's not to necessarily pin it to a religion, but it's, it's a kind of language of, I don't know, honor and respect and that has a sacred quality to it. And Quenya basically, or something related to Quenya, evolves into Sindarin, which is a spoken language, a modern spoken language, when the action of The Lord of the Rings takes place. And even though these two languages sound pretty different, and their sound systems works in different ways, there are some similarities there. And characters, it's pretty clear, have some opinions about Elvish, namely that it sounds like very beautiful and melodic, and we're often told this... And this is contrasted with, for example, the Orcish language, which it's really pretty obvious. Um, we get some sentences attested of Orcish in the text. And even without knowing much about Sindarin or Quenya or Orcish, you could you would be able to differentiate between them pretty easily just because of how they sound. So this is from the, the chapter that I mentioned where Mary and Pippin are in the Orcish camp before the Orcs start talking to them in westron we hear the sentence ugluk u bagronk sha pushdug sauruman globe sky it's hard to pinpoint but so many like phonological aspects of just this phrase alone are really you would not find in the elvish languages so like the sounds sh and d coming up against each other the nk at the end of a word um a, a, a word like globe that's not that, that's not a very good elvish word and you know we're, so Basically, we get the impression, like this is this is us outside of the text, that the elvish languages have this kind of airy, melodic, almost like Italian, because people always say that Italian sounds musical, um, or like like a romance, or certainly perhaps European um, flair to it, and orcish sounds very. I, I mean. If we're sticking within Europe, Orcish sounds, I don't know, maybe like German or Hungarian or something. But it, it sounds like the opposite of what we would imagine a typical, like, you know, flowingly beautiful European language sounds like.
1: Right, because we, we have certain stereotypes about the way that languages sound. Absolutely. And I think, those
0: stereot- I think Tolkien <laughs> uh, had those same stereotypes. And I think that they manifest themselves fairly clearly in The Lord of the Rings
1: how do they manifest themselves with the Orcish language and the Dwarvish language and the Elvish language? Well, it's funny because
0: Dwarvish actually, the Kuzdul language has a lot of those same phonological or phonetic idiosyncrasies that I mentioned that Orcish has. So those kind of, those both sound, I don't know, clunky. To put it in linguistic terms, Dwarvish and Orcish have in common a lot of uh, sort of consonant clusters or consonants that can sort of abut on each other that would be, Illegal or impossible in the Elvish languages. There is something in particular like so I said it would be very easy to tell apart Elvish from Orcish even if you didn't know much about them It would be harder to to tease apart Orcish and Dwarvish for the reasons that I just gave. However, there is something really interesting about Dwarvish once you start poking a little deeper um, Something that really wouldn't necessarily be obvious to someone reading the Lord of the Rings without a linguistic background unless you're really looking closely the way that Dwarvish words are formed and the way that the sort of Dwarvish morphology or word building or sentence building works is basically identical to the way that the Semitic, the real life Semitic family of languages does things. And so Semitic is a is a language family that includes Hebrew and Arabic and Amharic in Ethiopia and uh, Aramaic and some extinct languages, Babylonian, Assyrian, etc. Uh, the Dwarvish language is really basically—it's not a Semitic language, but because the, the the individual roots are different. But basically, the system of roots in Dwarvish works in exact same in the exact same way as they do in the Semitic languages, and different from how they do in uh, another major language family called the Indo-European languages, which contains English, actually all of the Germanic languages and all of the Baltic and Slavic and Celtic and Greek and Italic, you know, Romance languages, uh, many of the familiar languages of Europe are from this family that's different from Semitic. And what's really notable about Semitic is that it includes Hebrew and Arabic, I guess. And so this is where, you know, back in the day, Jewish people or Arabs might have been referred to as Semites or Semitic peoples. And that's where we get, you know, like anti-Semitic as a term for now. I think it mostly means like anti-Jewish um, but yeah, so basically, and it, just to distill it down to um, one major point. So, the Dwarvish language that Tolkien created, that he didn't really expound upon quite as much as he did uh, the Elvish languages, but Dwarvish is based on a three roots with three sounds, roots with three consonants, or triconsonantal roots, as they're actually called in Semitic grammars. And basically, that means that you can take three consonants, for example, the k sound, the z, sound, and the d, k, z, d. That in and of itself in, in a European language wouldn't make much sense. That's just three sounds. But in a Semitic-like in a semitic in a Semitic-like language or in Dwarvish, it means dwarf, actually that root. So kuzdul is the word for Dwarvish. And if you look closely, you see kuzd, which is the k sound with a, with a u vowel in there, and then z, d, and then the suffix ul, which means, I don't know, it's some, so, some sort of adjective former. or it means like the language of the dwarves. But we see that same k, z, d in, for example, the word kazad doom, kazad which is, so doom comes from the word meaning like to dig or a dugout area. And so kazad-dum is the the, the delved area of the dwarves or the duero-delf or the, the dugout area of the dwarves is, is what kazad doom means. So kazad-dum, duero-delf, duero is, is, well, duero and delf is one of those words that he got from... Old English, but sort of extended forward, what if, what if this word still existed kind of thing. But anyway, so what's what's interesting, I guess, is that Tolkien, and I learned this, actually, I, did, I had no idea that this was, I knew about the Semitic connection, but I didn't really know uh, what I'm about to say until the Tolkien Heads episode where we interviewed this guy who calls himself the Duero Scholar, who is a uh, fantastic and friendly uh, Belgian man named Roy, who has this really fleshed-out website of what he calls Neo-Kuzdul. And basically, he took the Tolkien version of Kuzdul and expanded it into a workable language with all basically the resources that you can find for Sindarin or Quenya because he's really passionate about Tolkien's dwarves. And when we were interviewing him on one of our episodes, I asked him, uh, Roy, why do you think Tolkien made Kuzdul, basically modeled it after Semitic? Or why do you think he got such strong inspiration from the Semitic languages for dwarves? And Roy said, "Oh well, that's because Tolkien saw the dwarves as kind of the Jews of this universe," and I was like, "Oh boy." <laughs> um, but but you can actually you can I mean you can confirm that this is Tolkien said as much in a, one of his notes. And sorry, this wasn't this wasn't one of his notes. This was a BBC interview with him in 1970 something. So. He gets asked this great question: Did you intend in *The Lord of the Rings* that certain races should embody certain principles—the elves' wisdom, the dwarves' craftsmanship, men' husbandry and battle, and so forth? And then he said, "Well, I didn't intend it. I don't know about that. I didn't intend it. But when you've got these people on your hands, you've got to make them different, haven't you?" Which I, is an answer that I love. And then so he talks about how the elves are kind of a thought experiment about what if people just lived forever? What would they be like? What if there was no? What if death wasn't an issue, basically? And that's kind of what the elves were like. And then he says, and the dwarves, and this is Tolkien himself, of course, quite obviously, wouldn't you say in many ways they remind you of the Jews? All their words are Semitic, obviously, constructed to be Semitic for the reasons that I just gave. So, hes it's almost like he's as surprised as we are. It's like, wow, well, they just sort of turned out that way.
1: I'm totally surprised.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a surprising thing, especially if you consider some of the I guess, aspects of Dwarvish society or the few things that we really know about Dwarves because they're sort of a mysterious people. I mean, so are Elves. Um, I think there are some unfortunate areas of overlap with typical European perceptions of Jews, especially like from the last hundred
1: years or so. It. it I mean, that... That really changes the way that I think about the stories right? and and the way that I've read them because now I can read in a lot of different ideas about the dwarves at, by connecting them to stereotypes yeah. of Jewish people or parts of, of Jewish history. In The Hobbit, wanting to return to a homeland. Exactly. Uh, but then also the stereotype of being obsessed with money because the dwarves are obsessed with gold and treasure. Mm-hmm. Um it's really important to distinguish between the text itself at being its own thing and then what an author says about their own work because, of course, those are those are different ideas. Just because Tolkien said that he had an idea in mind doesn't mean that that is what the text itself means. Sure.
0: Um, but you have to be aware of what effect that might have on any reader. This was news to me, and even though I knew about the Semitic language connection, um, so you know, it didn't really have an effect on this particular reader, me. Um, but I think that maybe um, there, are, there are people in the audience or the readership of Lord of the Rings who, who might, I guess, more easily be um, predisposed to look for connections like that. Or,
1: I mean, there absolutely are people like that. The Lord of the Rings has been something that a lot of white nationalists have really latched onto. Yes. Um, because the different races of elves and men uh, and hobbits band together in order to expel the evil of orcs. So, one way of reading the story is as a race war. Yes. Um, yeah, that's,
0: that's absolutely true. Um, so what I argued in my talk, or what I at least tried to provide some evidence for, is that you, there are kind of two. There are two readings that are will be equally obvious to different kinds of readers. You know, in terms of race, in particular, one is uh, you can look at the humans and the elves and the dwarves. Who you know whether they represent Jews or not. The dwarves are not evil. They're not orcs. Um, so men and elves and dwarves and Ents as so you can look at those races because that's what they're called as representing um kind of a unified um battle against intolerance because you know sauron and mordor are unable to sort of tolerate like all this all this sort of freedom and happiness in society that's going on outside of mordor i mean there's more to it than that obviously it has a lot to do with power um and that's one valid, valid reason, I think, um, where sort of a bunch of races teaming together and sort of transcending what might logically divide them. Um, but the other reading is sort of, yeah, you have these, you know, quote-unquote good races teaming up against evil races, too. And the problem is, I think that it's too easy to read, for example, orcs or any of the evil races as people of color and like you said, so so there are a couple incidences where um, it's just, oh, it's just, I wish, like, Tolkien had gotten, like, had appointed an editor who could have made, like, a 2018 version. And to, to know that, like, when they were in um, Bree, I think, to call the, the black writers, like, the black men is not going to sound great. J- just, it, that's not going to sound good to, you know, modern readership. But beyond that, uh, there, there is stuff that he probably should have been able to, for, to foresee. Um, so, for example, if I, if I could mention in one of his notes, um, this is kind of obvious from the text, I think, but in one of Tolkien's notes, he actually states explicitly, the orcs are definitely stated to be corruptions of the, quote, human form seen in elves and men. They are or were squat, broad, flat-nosed, sallow-skinned, with wide mouths and slant eyes. In fact degraded and repulsive versions of the to Europeans least lovely mongol types whoa yes yeah so he's basically saying that elves and men possess a more or less human form and orcs with their you know flat noses and slant eyes exemplify something else something less than human or non-human
1: yeah so yeah it sounds like he is just dehumanizing Asian people
0: I mean what if you're what if you're a reader who is, you know, not white or you have some of these like like features genetically that he's that he's describing. How how where are you gonna feel like you fit into the universe of Middle earth, I guess, you know? He's basically saying like, oh, people would confuse you for an orc or something. Yeah. Not I mean not in so many words, but yeah.
1: Yeah, that's that's really harsh. I, I think maybe we can just back up for a second sure. to the the last quote that you just read, where he says that you have to make the different people different. Mm-hmm the idea of race is so fundamental to the world that he creates and that you have different groups of people who have different moral characteristics along with their appearances mm-hmm. and just that you can divide different humanoid beings into separate groups right really has an inheritance from racial biology of early 20th century it
0: absolutely does yes say what you will about the frequent friendships between elves and dwarves and men but he's basically created these three different yeah races that for the most part don't get along they live in their own communities um they don't you know they're not riding the same bus as each other um they're 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 not drinking from the same water fountain um for the most part of course he does have some um examples like Gimli and Legolas and their amazing friendship, which I think must serve some purpose insofar as you know, showing that he he he's not saying it's inevitable for you know the the differences between them really are stupid, and Legolas and Gimli realize that, and they're they're sort of this model model friendship like between races, I guess, and I think that's you know a, a nice thing.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's that's also a wonderful part of the stories is that you can read a very anti-racist idea in them of of the elves and dwarves overcoming their prejudices and realizing that those prejudices are based on stereotypes.
0: Yes. I'm not going to argue at all at at any point that like the Lord of the Rings is irreconcilably like problematic or racist or something. But some of this stuff goes really deep. Um, Like the orcish stuff I guess my problem with it is if you're, a, if you're a reader and you're not white, you know, what are you supposed to think, I guess, or how are you supposed to feel when you read descriptions like that? So in addition to the orcs being described as, quote, Mongol types, the men of the south come from, yeah, some area that's south of the main action of Middle-earth. And basically we're told that they have dark skin, they wear a lot of gold they, I think, paint themselves red or something, and they come from the desert or, or hot areas, and they fight with elephants. So I guess the only thing I can make of that is that they're supposed to, their, their land is sort of supposed to be the Africa of the, of the Middle-earth world, even though, you know, it's not named as such. And we hardly hear anything about them, except that they are allied with Sauron. And there's one chapter where... One of them, there's some battle going on between them and I think the men of Gondor. And one of these Southron men, um, like an actual, like a man with like black skin or dark skin, falls dead and Sam finds him. And Sam is just contemplating the body of this fallen warrior. And he has this moment of insight and empathy where he's like, huh. I, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but he's, he's, Sam's thinking, I wonder what persuaded this man to like join this battle and to fight us. And to you know to like I wonder what threats there were that encouraged him to join the war like for the evil side basically. So even though Sam is admitting that this guy's f- like fought for the wrong side, he still he still views him as a human. I think it's unfortunate that Sam only has this thought when he's confronting a dead Southron man. Why he couldn't be thinking these things like while they're still alive? And it reminded me of how you know whenever we hear in the news that. You know, another unarmed black man was shot by police because they thought he was, you know, they thought he had a weapon. Um, All this sympathy goes out and it's like, oh, my God, how could this have happened? Like we have a systemic problem in the police force. And yet we can never seem to like preempt these things or at least, you know, this this these very real systemic problems never catch themselves ahead of time. And I actually think unfortunately that what happens with Sam is a really good depiction of that. Um Sam doesn't have any thoughts of empathy while he's I mean, to be fair, he's running for his life from these people. But then when one when he's in when he's in a state of total safety, I guess there's no more threat, then finally he says, Huh. I wonder I wonder why he was doing this. I wonder like what drove this man to fight on the wrong side. Yeah. So
1: Well yeah, I mean I think it's just critical race theory is a really valuable tool when looking through Tolkien's work and, and other literature is because it it allows you to look at a set of symbols that are in the literature and how different people will project what they want onto those symbols. Absolutely.
0: And Tolkien's symbols, if you will, um, elves and dwarves and orcs, Tolkien contributed hugely to the, I guess, codification, if you will, or the canonization or you know making canon like what exactly a fantasy elf is and a fantasy dwarf because he sort of he took them from this long tradition uh, this germanic mythological tradition and since tolkien so many fantasy writers have really co-opted like tolkien style elves and dwarves and even orcs um what you know an elf or a dwarf is or looks like or how they talk um, what color hair they have whether they have beards or not all that
1: yeah How how has your relationship to Lord of the Rings changed after working on this podcast?
0: Honestly, I have much shorter patience with Tolkien. It really does frustrate me to read things like, "Oh, uh, like these black men that were here." Like, come on, come on, Tolkien! Why did you have to? Why did you have to use that phrase? Like, there there are so many better ways. Why do they have to be? Why do they have to be the Black Riders? Why does everything have to be the dark this or the black that? Um, I don't know, and I know that it's so entrenched. I, I guess both the even the English language, most languages probably, and certainly, I, I guess traditional European or medieval culture is awash in this notion of like light versus dark being good versus evil. But it's it's I I lose my patience with it sometimes now. Certainly more than I did uh, in middle school. I used to think it was it was cooler back then, but I lose my patience with it now, and I I think it's it's it bores me sometimes. It's like what. So, so, the evil land is the black land, of course. Couldn't you have thought of something like, I don't know, a little more original? There are countries uh, in the real world. So Niger, Nigeria, both mean basically the the country of black people that um from the Latin word for black. Uh, the, the the name Sudan comes from the Arabic word for like black people. Um, there are real, countries there are real places in our world that are called this so maybe maybe let's not call more so mordor means like the black land too why does why does that have to be your name for for the the evil kingdom come on i don't know i guess so I, I lose my patience more quickly with things like that but because of the podcast you know i'm sticking with it and and it's it's worth it i'm i'm learning a lot about the text about, about sort of tolkien's own his whole like mythology the legendarian which I really do admire and respect even though it's sometimes it's tiresome to hear about what happened with the Numenorians and the Silmarils and all that I do really uh admire and respect all the work that he did in creating that world and that kind of that really does get to me and I and I enjoy that so honestly learning to read not past the problematic stuff but to sort of put that on the table and consider it and, and realize that problematic stuff is problematic, of course. And I guess learning to distinguish that from the stuff that really does attract me to his writing. And there is plenty of that stuff has really been, I guess, a skill that I've honed. I've been subconsciously honing over the course of the podcast. So yeah, I guess that's what I would answer.
1: If you enjoyed our discussion, you should definitely go listen to the Tolkien Heads. They occasionally have guests on the show, like on episode 62, when I joined the Heads to close-read The Ride of the Rohirrim and delve into the indigenous stereotypes that manifest in Tolkien's description of the wild men of the Woses. Go to thetolkienheads.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Links to the Tolkien Heads can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbu. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Ronart Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit Scandinavian.washington.edu for a full transcript of today's episode or to learn more about the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a class or declaring a major. Want to learn the languages that inspired Tolkien? Sign up for Finnish or Old Norse, or consider taking Scandinavian Mythology or the Kalevala and the Epic Tradition. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, That's scandinavian.washington.edu.